If you would turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel, we're in chapter 10, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Saul of the tribe of Benjamin now knows he is to be the first king of Israel. But he hides what has just happened with Samuel from everyone else. We left off last Sunday in the middle of 1 Samuel 10. After Samuel had privately anointed Saul, telling him, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Samuel also said that God would give Saul... Three detailed signs to assure him and equip him that he would be king. And those three signs took place exactly as Samuel said they would. Now in verse 17 through the rest of chapter 10, we see the story continuing and the surprises are not over. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 through 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Samuel rebukes Israel again here in the first part of this section. And the issue is very, very serious. Last time, the people were called to Mizpah. Do you remember that? It was only a chapter or so ago, a couple of chapters. The last time all the people were called to this place, they had been rebuked 
severely rebuked for their continued idolatry and their impetuous arrogance in how they thought about God and the Ark of the Covenant. That's in chapter 7, verses 5 through 11 especially. They were also still plagued by the aggression of the Philistines. But after Samuel the priest prayed for them, all the people demonstrated a heartfelt repentance. And God decisively intervened to deliver them in another huge battle with the Philistines, who had gathered around all the Israelites gathering. Now gathered at Mitzpah again, Samuel begins by delivering another stinging rebuke from the Lord. Verse 18 and 19, the first part, we read, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. What a way to begin a solemn gathering of all of Israel. Now think about this. What do you think these people were expecting to hear next? You see, this is not new information. Their demand to have a king like all the nations around them had already been correctly understood by Samuel, who voiced it, as an attempt by the people to replace their true God. Replace him. Why? What for? Look at God's first rebuke. He reminds Israel here of his great and saving works through their history, which is normal. This is what they're supposed to remember. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Verse 18. To these Israelites, it sure seemed like they had been delivered a lot. But that just meant that they had been oppressed by other people a lot. You following? God says, I've delivered you. And they're going, man, it sure seems like to us every other week, you know, we've got some new enemy. So they knew that they had been oppressed by other people a lot, and they had needed to be delivered a lot. They were in, had been enslaved in Egypt and opposition from everywhere, Moabites, Ammonites, all the ites, and some Enes, some Philistines, and who knows who else. Actually, they're all listed in the Old Testament. Well, what's with this? Do you see what they're thinking? This sure sounds like what has been normally experienced by God's people down through history as well in the continuous fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Any student of history would immediately recognize this. We Each of us need to recognize this. This seems to be a continuous fight that we're in. So it seems like God's people, because... We are set apart from the world while in the world to live unto the Lord in holiness. We have to face a lot of trial and hard stuff just because of that. 
Samuel knew that God had been faithful to deliver them. But God's people often just want to avoid all the trials, uh, which we see the Israelites having this problem. And we're going, how could they do this? And we're going, oh, I do exactly the same thing. I'll do anything to avoid trials, conflict, standing for my faith, being true to my God. That's the point. And the easiest way to avoid all the trials is exactly the same as it was here. To fit in with the world. If we do just a few things the world's way, we we might be able to avoid sticking out. They wanted to fit in with the world around them and not be so different. God called them out to be different. He called you and I out to be different. Oh, they'd go through the motions and give lip service to it all. After all, they were not asking for a new God to worship, but only a political system to make them like all the nations. Notice that God's second rebuke here in our passage insists that demanding a political system to make them like all the nations, for them, we are not Israel, the people of the Jews, we are the new Israel. New covenant people. But we're not the Israel that God called out. I don't think there's probably one person in here that has Jewish blood. There might be, but that's not the point here. The point here that God's rebuke insists that demanding a political system to make them like all the nations actually confirms that they were asking for a new God to worship. He actually says this literally here in this verse. But today, you have rejected God. Can you get any clearer than that? Who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. So to do one means you've done the other. Here. Does this sound like the Old Testament version of James 4.4? James 4.4 You adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. Wow. We not only have this taught in the New Testament, the whole Old Testament illustrates it. Most of us are pretty good at learning how to not stick out. Usually for some partly good reasons. But you know, our hearts keep going back, just like these people did to this. Why is this so serious for them and it's also so serious for us today? Being God's people demands fidelity to him. We don't hear that word much anymore. Faithfulness, loyalty to him. And holiness before the world is demanded of us. And thus Israel's request for a worldly king was effectively a desire to no longer be God's people. Jesus told his followers, what? In the world, you will have tribulation. 
But take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. For Christians to turn aside from the tribulations that accompany godliness is to renounce Christ's power to overcome on our behalf. Yeah, it's in my face. Yeah, it's in your face. Yeah, we need to hear it. The second part of our passage this morning, God reveals his choice to Israel. Let me say that differently. God reveals his choice for Israel. Now, we've already talked about why, but we're going to be mentioning it again here. First, though, continue, as we think about this, picturing Samuel delivering this rebuke from God to the gathered nation. You have rejected me, says God. Do you think he paused right there? I think he did. What was he hoping would happen? At the end of that rebuke. If he paused, what was he waiting for? What was he hoping for? I think it'd be almost impossible actually not to pause at the end of verse 19a, the first part of 19a. And you have said to him, set a king over us, pause, wait. Because Samuel wanted so much for the people to finally see the magnitude of their error and repent of their sin. Which is what happened last time at Mizpah. The people had heartfelt repentance. In fact, they devised several ways to actually show it. They did something all together to show that they had repented and that they, they were drastically affected by the seriousness of their sin. And they saw it. Well, the silence is deafening right here because there was no such reply or response. What does that mean? It means really, really hard hearts, stiff necks, any kind of example you want to use. So with no immediate response at all from the people and and the, the seriousness and the drama of this is stepping up. Samuel continues and he issues a summons which is what this is for them to present themselves to the Lord by their tribes and by their thousands here in the last part of verse 19. And we go, well, that's weird. No, this is not weird. This is scary. You see, in this process of picking a king, this was a new thing. They weren't familiar with this process at all. But what were they familiar with? They did know by their history what it could mean to be summoned by tribes and clans for the selection of lots. It it was done many times before. Sometimes it was picking soldiers for who was going to go out. Sometimes it was picking who would get what part of the land when they came in. That kind of thing. But, but, but. This time there had been a stinging rebuke that Samuel delivered from the Lord. And there's one event, especially during their deliverance, that would just shatter them. And they would 
just be fear times a million. There were several times like that, but does the name Achan ring any bells? Would these people immediately recall what God did in response to Achan's sin after Israel was defeated at a place called Ai during the conquest of Canaan? They were told not to bring back any loot from the battle. And stuff started going on. They lost big time and they were gathered. And what happened? They were summoned to come before and by lot, they picked the tribe, they picked the clan, they picked the family, and they picked, they figured out who it was. It was Achan and he and his whole family were destroyed by God in front of everybody. Okay, do you see the drama building here? That would be something you do not forget when we're summoned after a stinging rebuke. And we read it in Joshua 7. I'm going to read verses 1 and then 14 and 15. The whole thing is is worth the read to get the effect, but this will do it enough, I think. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. By man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Casting of the lots, probably using the Urim and Thummim. One of them had a negative no, the other one had a positive yes, are before them again, and we don't know exactly what was explained and what was not in this process but we are told that Saul was the man chosen as a result of this process. The point here is a little different than what the people, I think, were probably thinking at first. They had no idea what was going on. Saul hadn't shared anything with anybody about what he had already been privately anointed. So what's going on in our text is that what had been disclosed privately by Samuel to Saul, he now publicly made clear to Israel. Saul's secret anointing of chapter 10, verse 1, is now confirmed publicly in a way that makes it clear that Saul is God's sovereign choice at Israel's first as Israel's first king. And so the people catch on, and you can almost hear this collective, but then they're kind of like, what does this really mean? Because what happens? They can't find him. Where is he? Isn't this story strange? When they sought him, we read in 21, he could not be found. And we don't know exactly what's going on with Saul. But the context seems to indicate his fear has overcome him and caused him to hide in the baggage, in the luggage. They couldn't find him after this whole process. Tribe, clan, family, the whole thing. Where is he? And remember, he was easy to find. He was taller than everybody. Now, there is some dripping irony here. 
isn't it ironic that on her own, Israel will be no more successful in finding her king than the new king was in finding his donkeys. That's how bad this situation is from the human perspective. And in verse 22 and the first part of 23, God's word makes clear again that even though the people of Israel are demanding a king for themselves, they are still, in reality, whether they like it or not, dependent on the Lord and so dependent upon the Lord that he, the Lord, must again disclose to them exactly where they can find their king because they can't even after he shows that he chose them. See, these people couldn't argue with the lot. There wasn't any political polls about tabs on voting machines and the cards and who did this and, you know, the, the states getting the votes and why didn't the one-on-one... There's none of that going on here. This was clear to them that this was God's choice, this man. They asked for this guy a king who would be like the other kings around them. And again, we see what? They get exactly what they wanted. And God's doing this for a reason. Everything in this text is meant to picture, to paint a contrast, intense contrast between what we think that we can do independent of God and still how utterly at his mercy we really are in our own blindness and ineptness. And the prouder we are in thinking that we can do stuff on our own, every one of us has this problem. Some just demonstrate it a whole lot more. The more visible it's going to be, the more life things that are going to happen to show you what? You really are utterly dependent on God, his mercy, and his plan. Even when the people ran and took Saul from his hiding place, this story is still getting weirder. Among the luggage, let's emphasize the details to show you almost how ridiculous it is. The people immediately focused on what was not really important about him. You'd think they'd get it by now, right? We certainly would. Oh, yeah. On how tall and strong he looked. But they sure, see, they, they were impressed. Look, look how impressive he looks. But they were so blind to the true condition of his heart in their own hearts. John 15, 5, we're reminded of something Jesus said that kind of we really need to see all this in the context of, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, what? He it is that bears much fruit for, apart from me, You can do nothing. And Samuel said to all the people, they pull him out. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? I.e., he's giving you what you wanted for purposes you don't even understand yet. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people were going, catching on, some of them were going, oh no, what have we done? But what do they say? What they're supposed to. Long live the king! And if they had known the word of God, they would have known already that the future Messiah king would not be from the tribe of Benjamin. And you don't see one little iota 
of recognition of that here yet. The king would come from the tribe of Judah. And they're, if they're catching on, they're going, oh, no. And we're going, oh, yeah. That's what he does. Samuel was saying, in effect, as he said this, don't you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There, there's this guy that, there's the man that you've been looking for. The man chosen by the Lord as your king. The bold leader who was hiding under the baggage in his own coronation. Isn't he tall and handsome? This is just dripping with all sorts of meaning. The people recovering from their shock as quickly as possible reply, long live the king. I think we can rightly say that while the people demanded a king, they were still in their hearts not able to achieve their independence from God. They were sure trying. Because that's what they really wanted. Do you see that? The king was just a symbol of their heart condition. What they really wanted was to be independent of God. Are you doing that today? This is where we run when we don't like what God's done in our life or how he's ordered it or we don't like how he set it up or what may be next or how he's planned it or anything. We don't like what God's word says. We, we think we could do a better job. We want to apply to us the way we want it to apply to us. We don't want to have to think about the hard stuff. We don't want to have to use our minds to understand the deep truths. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. This is what their hearts truly desired. And this is what God is showing us here in this passage. But... God's sovereignty is not set aside. It is never set aside. Even as God granted Israel's demand for a king to actually replace him, that's what's going on. He granted that request. But his sovereignty is not set aside because they're getting exactly what they wanted. And as we're learning here, that will not be a good thing for them until God accomplishes his purposes, until they recognize their great need and sin and humble themselves in repentance before God and one another. And every person in here that has been as many of the Puritans that we're talking about during Sunday school, as they mentioned, were chased down by God. Hound of heaven. They recognize that God brings us to places where our stubborn hearts are finally broken. And if you can say to that that was a good thing then you have grown mature because what that says is it says that I on my own could not break my heart into submission to the person I know is God almighty and Lord Thank the Lord that he did what was necessary to bring events in my life that would change me and make me see it so that I could trust him because knowing him is better than anything. That's why his grace is amazing because we wouldn't write the story like this. Now, there's some other things that happen in this passage. There's not many verses left, so it doesn't take very long, but they're still important. Third of four things here is the, 
the kingship and God's law. And the first question we ought to ask as we read verse 25 is why isn't the word king used? Why is kingship used? Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Now that is a neat picture. So what Samuel does, and he draws most of this, most probably from Deuteronomy 17, that chapter outlines the thing that that the kingship is supposed to be for when it comes. Remember, it wasn't anywhere on the radar in Deuteronomy when that was written. So you see God going, yeah, y'all are going to do this, and it's actually part of my plan as only he can do that because he's sending his own son as the king of kings for all of us. And if you can wrap your head around that whole picture, you're doing pretty well because I don't think too many of us can, but we can still get the glimpses and see, and this is hopeful. It's hopeful because God is so much bigger than we think he is in his sovereign providence and the way he's working out his plan of redemption that it just blows our mind when we finally realize that even when it looks like, oh, well, they've outmaneuvered God, they got what they wanted, it's actually God using people's rebellion to accomplish his ultimate purposes, which is said point blank in the New Testament about the crucifixion of Christ. Joseph said it in the Old Testament when confronted about his brothers. You guys did this for evil. God did it for good. That is the mature perspective of someone who knows his God. Immediately, Samuel here applies God's law to this new kingship immediately. In other words, the kingship would be subject to what? God's law. What Samuel said had to be very similar to that Deuteronomy 17 passage, which anticipated this part of redemptive history and the demand the people would have for a king. What Samuel wrote prescribed how kingship was to function in Israel. And you notice the king had to write it down and keep it. In other words, he was supposed to study this. He was supposed to make it a part of his heart, his mind, his thinking, the whole thing. And what does this mean? Well, for one thing, it means the king is really a vice king. Since he is under or subject to God and his law. And for another thing, it means that the king's submission to that law should eliminate tyranny and abuse. Now, do you catch the irony here? They wanted a king to be like all the nations around them where the absolute problem was always an absolute problem. Never went away, never has gone away, and it ends up in tyranny and abuse. And what we're seeing here is the whole point of God sending his king was to set him up to rule for the best, for God's glory, for people to know this God through these people. And we see that here. Different? We we don't want to be different. And God says, I'm sorry, but you're here to glorify me. I'm your king. If you live according to the way I have outlined, you need to in dependence upon me. You will be different whether you like it or not. See? So even in this, God is showing this incredible contrast between what it means to be the people under him as king, even if they have a vice king on earth, with the nations and their kings. So this text is one of the key passages 
that's used over and over again down through history to support the idea that even royalty is subject to divine law. This is the text that the reformers went to. This is the text that American colonists went to. And as you probably realize, that's an important part of history. Protestant reformers used 1 Samuel 10 and Deuteronomy 17 to provide the biblical rationale for colonial American Christians a little later to argue for their political freedom. Pointing out that by placing human society under God's law, the Bible furnishes us with the principles that we need to defend a free society. Until the people in the free society ending up rejecting God's law, and then it's the same thing as the king. But it's not just the king who is under or subject to God's law. It's all of God's people, true? There is and always has been so much confusion about the law. So let's just try to clear this up a little bit as we close today. Dale Ralph Davis sums it up pretty easily. He says, You will never view the law correctly unless you remember that Exodus 20 verse 2 comes before Exodus 20 verses 3 through 17. What's Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 through 17? Ten Commandments. And what's Exodus 22? God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see what he's saying? God's saying, I have set you free from bondage. It was not your doing. Only my power decimated Pharaoh. My lamb protected you from ruin. My hand split open the sea. Now that you are free, here is how a free people is to live. Here are my commandments. You don't keep them in order to earn freedom. You keep them seeing that they are my gift. You keep them in order to enjoy freedom. To preserve it. To maintain it. To avoid becoming slaves again to anyone else. That's the beautiful picture that we have. Saul is under a law governing kingship not to destroy his kingship but to allow it to function properly. Those rules that Samuel wrote for him. And God's people are under God's law and commandments not to inhibit and sour the Christian life but to order it and protect it from an alien bondage. During the Sunday school lesson this morning, I think Godfrey's quote was that one by the Puritans that said, oh, I just, it just lost. It just went away. Something about there's not one happy. Anyway, blew that one. See, I knew better than to do this. Over 60 and losing it quickly. Amen. It's pretty bad when there's more amens on that than the hallers. Uh, we're not under God's law. He is not trying to ruin our lives and make us not enjoy life. He's trying to protect us and order it so that we can enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. That's the point. The intent of all the teaching in like Romans 12 through 15, those chapters, Galatians 5 and 6, Ephesians 4 through 6, Colossians 3 and 4, and actually the whole book of James is to keep a people free in purity of life 
holiness of desires, winsomeness of speech, absence of bitterness, and to maintain balanced relationships, understand spiritual warfare and be able to fight it, and really be grounded in compassion. That's the purpose. If we as Christians appreciate and treasure the freedom Christ has given us in him, then the law should no longer be a dreadful curse, but it's a joy to obey, which answers the question of why would you read um, like Psalm 119 that takes up half the book? When you read that, if you're reading a daily plan, don't you go, how can he say, oh, your law is so exciting, your law gives me joy, your law, and I'm sitting there going, I have never thought of any law as joy or exciting. This is the answer. This is the answer. It's not a curse in that sense. It shows us our need. It shows us that we can't keep it, which brings us to Christ. And once we're freed from the slavery of sin, then it shows us how to live. The last thing here in verses 26 and 27 is this. We see division immediately. Nothing new there, is there? So after this huge gathering of Israel to do, to, to hear about the the new king has been picked, God makes that clear. We immediately see all the division that comes as a result of that. The men of valor and some worthless men. Worthless men is actually, literally, sons of Belial in the Hebrew, which is another way of saying sons of Satan. Yeah, worthless is kind of a lame translation unless you know what that means, but that's it. It's, it's a negative big time here in the text. And that's a description, I get this, this is a description in the text of the men who openly derided Saul, whom God had chosen to be the king. Are you sensing the tension here? They despised him and brought him no present. They were rejecting Saul, though, see, not merely as a person, but they were rejecting him in his, what, office. As the one God had chosen to give Israel. So this should remind us that when God permits us to be ruled by unspiritual leaders, God's people have an obligation to submit to those rulers placed over them under God. In a republic, it works a little differently. Don't just read a whole bunch into this because we have more responsibility to voice concern and to do more than that sometimes. But Paul wrote in Romans 13:1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God, but we are still called to proclaim the truth and living according to that truth daily, which may mean calling to account those over us for their sin, which would bring trial, maybe? But see, we know that how we do that while still maintaining a godly attitude of respect and submitting means that we have to be really wise and discerning, fearing only God, but in everything, walking in humility with respect of persons in office, and that is one of the hardest things to do on the face of the earth. Do you not agree? And we will be called to do that individually and maybe as a body of believers more in the future than we ever have before. So, I personally am very glad that we have each other to go to God's Word together with as we figure these things out. And I mean that. 
And now that we're about ready to launch into Saul's blundering and arrogant reign as the king, we, which we already know something about, we should all have a better appreciation for and the desire for the king of kings to return. And that's what we need to leave with today. This makes us aware of what we really need, who we really need, and what do we say? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And that's a good thing. Hold on to that hope. Let's pray. Oh God, we know that Jesus will return, that he will make things right, and we're recognizing that more and more as we look around us today. Thank you for that hope. And as we gather this week to remember what we're thankful for, let him be preeminent in our thanks and gratefulness. God, give us the ability to see through the grid of your perspective that you've given us in your word to see the bigger picture and what's really important so that all the stuff that breaks our hearts and hurts us now can be seen in the bigger picture of ways that you've allowed us to be a part of your redemptive plan to reflect your glory and grace so that you can bring your people and their hearts to yourself through the gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for your benediction? The grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a great week. Amen.